At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. I am Mark Bigney, your co-host, and with me, as always, is Michael Walker. How you doing, Walker? Fantastic, Mark. We had some lovely feedback on the guild. It was very, very gratifying, and someone pointed out that they would reliably look forward to my tortured puns. And yes, indeed, my puns are very tortured, and I thought, how could I reward them with another installment of this? And quite frankly, I came up empty. I've, I've been racking my brain. I've been turning the idea over and over in my head like a wheel, but I decided to flog the bit lest I screw it up. You'll be spared that ordeal, I confess. And so what we're going to do is just our standard retinue of game opinions, which are thoroughly wrong and incorrect. We are going to start with the as-yet-unnamed retrospective intro segment, the Aurus, onto the games we played last week, news and why it doesn't matter, and then finally our topic of the week, which is miniatures, specifically when they add to a design, when they detract to a design, when they're appropriate, when they're inappropriate. And let us begin with our Aurus. The Aurus for this week is Cthulhu Death May Die. What are your thoughts on Cthulhu Death May Die a year on, Walker? What a great surprise. We've gone back to it many times. Many good stories out of the Cthulhu Death May Die. Another surprise out from Simon Games. It delivers on exactly what it promises. It takes itself not seriously at all. And I enjoy playing it every time it comes to the table. I don't know if I would agree with those terms because what it promises with its dour arc and traditional graphic representations of monsters of the Cthulhu mythos is another kind of very serious sort of shooting Cthulhu in the face with a shotgun thing. Instead, it's an incredibly stupid shooting Cthulhu in the face with a shotgun thing, which is quite frankly the only way to do it appropriately because the idea is absurd. It's pulpy to 11. Some of the scenarios are out and out ridiculous. Our favorite one involve, involves strapping dynamite to mooses. It, wonderful game. We have indeed gone back to it many, many times. 
Well, I, I think that's well part of it, right? Like if you look just on the surface, it looks like one of those cookie cutter Cthulhu games. One hundred percent. When as soon as you start reading the scenarios, you are quickly reminded that it is not so much that mentally unhinged idiots doing a stupid thing. And bumbling around doing something that makes no sense. It's great. Strapping C4 to Moose before they get teleported up to the mothership so you can blow it up. I, I, I don't even know where to go with that. That's It is a shame that that scenario is Kickstarter exclusive as it is one of the greatest scenarios in all of board game design. And really serves to underscore the ridiculousness of what's going on. I love it when board games are satire. I love it when board games can take something that seems straightforward and completely turn it on its head. While still giving the satisfaction of the core source material, right? Because there is some joy to running around and shooting mythos monsters in the face. But you need a little bit more to elevate the the, the source material. And one way to elevate it is just by treating it all as a massive joke. Agreed. Wonderful design by Rob Daviau and Eric Lang. Put up by Kuhlman, you're not. Cthulhu, Death May Die. I st- would still recommend the base retail version, but of course, more is better. And that is the game we reviewed exactly one year ago. And now, onto the games we played this week, which wasn't a lot for me, Mark, because we get three years of COVID free, and then at the very end, it ravages through our camp. So it was a slow week, but we did get some games played. One in, in, I got one played in real life. The rest all played on Board Game Arena, but still had a decent time. What did you get to play this week? It was a great week for gaming for me. I finally got to settle in after my long, long weeks of travel and elder care. I played another game of Switch and Signal by David Thompson. I talked about this for the first time last week. And I will comment that playing it multiplayer for the first time was very much what I expected. Namely, there is no attempt to undercut the quarterbacking issue. And there is no even pretense of it being anything other than a puzzle being solved by committee. You know, it's one of those one of those co-op games where the solo play is exactly the same as one player playing multiple hands effectively. There's no real salient difference. That having been said, if you play with somebody that is willing to accept it on those terms you do get some ability to bounce ideas off each other. Sometimes this is boring because there's just obvious plays, but Switch and Signal was at least able to stand up to the scrutiny of multiple minds looking at it, and so we did have the opportunity to discuss options and strategies and gambits, and as a result, it was perfectly satisfying as a multiplayer experience. The design itself is great, despite the fact that, it, as I say, it doesn't really grapple with multiplayer issues in a substantial way, but I'm continuously surprised by how much I enjoy Switch and Signal, even while acknowledging some of its uh, shortcomings. It very, very much feels like an air traffic controller being cast in the role of Lucy in that episode of I Love Lucy where she's working at the chocolate factory. There's just this stream of trains coming at you, and you have a limited ability to just guide them where you hope to get them to want to go and the funniest moments in the game definitely and not that the game is laced with humor certainly not at the level of, of satire but sometimes a train is is heading for a switch and you're like okay just just shunt it to the south of france we don't know where we want it to go just let it run in circles around uh, calais for a while and, and see what happens and that's just an indication of what's going on with these trains going off in random directions it's extremely satisfying i was surprised by how much i enjoyed it switch and signal by david thompson so when it says multiplayer, you think probably two players as high as you would probably go with that, eh? I would be willing to try it with three. I'd even be willing to try it with four. I suspect, though, that as the player count goes up, 
the enthusiasm would probably go down because, again, there's less for every individual player to do, and the prospect of the committee discussions being satisfying probably goes down. I got to play a game called Big Monster. This is designed by Dimitri Perrier and published by Board Bros, and it's very much like a Sushi Go type game. You're passing around these uh, handfuls of of tiles and there are all sorts of different monsters, much like the different types of sushi. But what this does, uh, a little bit more than sushi go where the cards just do what they do and they, they score off of themselves. These ones not only score with themselves because there's different types of monsters, but there's also a sort of a spatial puzzle because all of the monsters are a one by two square and you can place them in sort of a, a virtual one by one grid. So you can sort of offset them and place them around your character board however you see fit because some monsters uh, mutate other monsters. Some monsters do better in a group. Uh, a lot of the monsters have different symbols on them, like either in the corners or on the bottom of the top. So if you match those up with the same symbols on the bottom of the top or the sides, then you'll get extra scoring that way. So a spatial puzzle, as well as the tiles themselves, as well as where they're going around your player board. So Sushi Go to the max. I found it very interesting and it played just as quickly as Sushi Go did and gave you the same feeling, but with a little bit more gameplay. And that is Big Monster. Same question I always have for every drafting game. How much hate drafting was there? How much player interaction was there of substance? How often were you looking at somebody else's board and saying, I know they need this monster. I'm a ticket from them. Surprisingly, it even happened. Even though it was on Board Game Arena, which hardly ever happens, at least while I'm playing it. I never usually scroll around and see what other people are doing. But there are definitely advantages to some player boards and, and not always is there the perfect choice for your board? So it's, you look at the tiles and say, well, this is okay, but they definitely need this other half of Great. this monster. So I'm just going to take that or I might as well start the same thing they're doing and not give them the pieces they need. So I was surprised, like I said, because usually I don't, on Board Game Arena, I don't really much care what the other players are doing. And in this case, it definitely broke that trend. So I definitely wouldn't mind giving it a try in real life. And that was Big Monster, the board game of Michael Walker. It was a good week for returning to some games that I've already talked about before. I played another game of Scout, the delightful climbing game by Kei Kajino. Splendid, splendid experience. Again, highly recommended. Played another game of the Stouffer Dynasty by Andreas Stetting. This is a relatively dry-ish, but very, very satisfying area-majority Euro. I pointed out that I'm not going to be having any puns this episode, so I will not point out that Andreas Stetting designed the Stouffer Dynasty, and then he designed Stroganoff thereafter. On the topic of clever Japanese card games, I got to play a trick-taking game called Ghosts of Christmas by Taiki Shinzawa, published this year by Board Game Tables. Many trick-taking games break my feeble little mind, typically through obtuse bidding conventions, weird partnerships, strange interactions with Trumps or what have you. Ghosts of Christmas, on the other hand, broke my mind by virtue of its mere premise. I will do my best to explain how it works. It is named Ghosts of Christmas after a Christmas carol. So you have the ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future. And also, if you want, you can play with a fourth time period. And the way that it works is, is that every round of play is four tricks simultaneously if you're playing with that extra time period. And you can play to any time period when you want to. And the round only ends once everyone has played to all four time periods. So you don't have to play in chronological order. You can play however you want. However... You do have to follow suit once someone has started a given time period. If I play a yellow in present, everyone must follow yellow if possible if I, that was the first card played to present. Someone else plays a green in past, well, everyone has to follow green in past if that was the first card played to past. However, 
the tricks will not necessarily be of that color. If I lead yellow, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be a yellow trick. Because it's played atemporally, when it comes time for the tricks to actually resolve, you pretend as though the cards were actually played in order, starting with whoever won the previous trick. So, for example, I open up present with green, everyone else has to follow green. But then, when we actually are resolving the tricks, whoever wins past leads present. If they were void in green and started with a blue, well, it's a blue trick, because they are quote-unquote the ones who played first in that time period. And the subtle interactions and the weird, unanticipated consequences that open up there, as well as the decision space of how to void and when, of when you're going to open up a trick, when you're going to take uh, bite that bullet and follow a trick even though you don't know what's going to happen, utterly delicious. That part oh, I I've got to play it. Yeah, it's... I just played like four games in my head. I've got to play that. Oh, it sounds so that good. Is, that part is utterly amazing. The only part where it, it kind of disappointed me because of how restrictive it was, was the bidding. It's the kind of bidding trick-taking game where you make a bid, top of the round. First of all, I haven't played the game enough to know what a good hand looks like or what a bad hand looks like. <laughs> because you play four rounds, three or four rounds of the thing, and in addition to this temporal messing. So I, 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 I had no conception of what a good hand looked like. And on top of that, if you fail your bid, if you win too many tricks, if you win not enough tricks, you score nothing absolutely nothing. <laughs> so uh. I had a great deal of difficulty wrapping my head around that part of it in a potentially pleasant way. I don't know. Maybe with more plays, I'll then start to get a better understanding of how this is supposed to work. And then I'll start seeing the possibilities. The card play I adored. The card play, I have no notes. It was utterly fabulous. The way that it interacted with the incredibly restrictive bidding eh, made it feel a little bit more narrow than I would have preferred. And then how do they deal with Trump? Like, did it change at all? Or was there Trump throughout? No, oh. that, that's the weird thing. It's one of those mind-breaking trick-taking games where Trump is incredibly simple. There's four suits. One of them is Trump. That's it. Okay. So it doesn't change throughout the times. Like, there's no way for it to switch halfway no. through. Only the lead will switch. All right. That's all yeah, right, cool. Yeah, but that that alone is enough because... It, oh, for sure. I'm just saying, can you imagine if they threw, like, a, a, a fluctuating Trump somehow, too, on top of that? Then it would be like, all right, yeah. Well, I actually appreciate the restraint because, again, traditionally when you're making a trick-taking game in the gamer hobby space, you typically throw some weirdnesses in with, with Trump or with some weird other interactions. I think the designer already knew that they had enough going on in Ghosts of Christmas that they didn't need to shine on yet more to hurt your head even more. This is one of those occasions where when the conceit was explained to me and when I finally internalized how it was going, I, I held my face in my hands and started wailing for a few moments, anticipating how much pain it was going to induce. The way things interact is sufficiently transparent, not easy, not facile, but sufficiently transparent that you can make calculated risks. It's like, okay, I, I, if this person's void in yellow, I know I'm in trouble. But other than that, I can lead this blue and be confident I'll win this trick and set up contingencies and things like that. So it wasn't the kind of situation that, again, I get with lots of trick-taking games like Mu, like a whole bunch of other ones where it's like, I need to sit down and think super hard just so I understand what will happen over the course of the round. So Ghost of Christmas was a marvelous surprise. I enjoyed it thoroughly. It's very much in a sort of minimalist Japanese card game tradition. I mentioned it in the same context of Scout, you know, just a subtle wrinkle that introduces wonderful timing considerations and a slight evolution about turning your evaluation of what's a good hand or a bad hand on its head. So I thoroughly recommend anybody that's interested in trick-taking games or in Japanese card games to take a look at Ghosts of Christmas, once again by Taiki Shinzawa, boardgametables.com, published this year. And is it, is it a four-player only? 
It is it is three or four players only. Okay. So slightly more flexible than some trick-taking games, which tend to be very, very specific. Mark, I got to dust off an old box, Champions of Midgard, and both expansions, The Dark Mountains and Valhalla. This is a game where you are collecting dice, you're going out on missions to destroy monsters, you're improving your table state, you're buying boats, and the expansions just bring so much more to the game. Because a lot is to be said with the base game of just losing your dice and having to build them up again and cycling this over and over again. But with the expansions, what you're doing is you're getting tokens every time you're your your dice die so therefore you're using these tokens to buy back more dice so it's sort of like compensation for losing dice introduced it to a new player this is designed by ole steinness and put out by gray fox games still enjoy it so glad i kept it <laughs> i'll play it anytime that sounds interesting are you sure you're talking about champions of midgard i am 100 percent talking about champions of midgard oh killing giants defeating trolls attacking undread Draugr taking boats out. It's the greatest story. I love it. And people love it because they, it's so true because it happens that way because the most popular people, Mark, in Champions of Midgard are the boatmen <laughs> because they get to make up whatever story they want because nine times out of 10, all of your, all of your dice die and the boat returns empty. That means the captain can make up any story he wants. He can tell a story about how all of the Vikings ran away and he alone killed the monster and saved the whole village because no one can say otherwise. I'm telling you the boatmen in Champions of Midgard, most famous people in the world. <laughs> Glad you enjoyed it, Walker. On the topic of Grey Fox games, I got to try Tsukuyumi Full Moon Down 2nd Edition. Now, I would just like to point out that this was a Kickstarter that was mired in a whole bunch of complaints. Some complaints I think are legitimate, others I think are vastly overblown. You ever notice sometimes, Walker, how campaigns start to fall apart and then people start piling on with the most arbitrary and inane complaints, which, if anything, kind of undermines the more legitimate ones? 100%. There were a number of things that went wrong with this fulfillment. For one thing, it's, you know, a year and a half late. Honestly, when it comes to Kickstarters, I'm not going to defend it, but Kickstarter being late, whatever. People complaining about the quality of miniatures, I think that's overblown. People raising a hue and cry about how some of their miniatures arrived at Bentwalker. Imagine that. How unforgivable Min is that? Board game miniatures with bent swords? No. I know, I it's know. It's a lie. I know, I know. You, you just got to take my word for it. People talking about how the card stock was the worst they'd ever seen, about how, you know, they tried to put it in a sleeve, but then the card dissipated into confetti, or about how they breathed on the card, and then it bent over backwards from the pressure. The card stock is fine. It's not good, but it's fine. I just opened a box, and then these vapors came up, and then the box was empty. Oh, the vapors. I don't know what happened. You have the vapors. The vapors. Heavens to Betsy. Anyway. So I played the first edition of Tsukuyumi Full Moon Down a couple of years ago. This is the one self-published by Felix Mertikat, who's both the designer and the artist and the world builder. And I thought that it was interesting, but the problem was I wasn't really prepared for what kind of game that it was. The, the, I have a bit of, a, of, a, of an issue walker, and I suspect a lot of gamers are the same way. If you get into a game expecting it to be 90 to 120 minutes, but it actually turns out to be three hours, your odds of enjoying that game, pretty slim. So this time, at least I knew what I was getting into. This is going to be long. And I also knew that this was a troops on a map game where your goal is to seize dirt. And while it's a long game, there are not a whole bunch of rounds. And so you have to be aggressive right from the get-go. And so to summarize my, my broad mistakes of both teaching and playing Tsukuyumi the first time, I wasn't sufficiently aggressive. 
And I, w- I wasn't able to encourage everyone else at the table to be sufficiently aggressive. And so we ended up spending a lot of time that we weren't anticipating spending and not a whole lot came out of it. But I nonetheless appreciated some of the systems as being very, very clever. And I can report that my experience now with Tsukuyumi is kind of akin to my uh, the arc of my experience with Argent the Consortium. Once you know what you're getting into, and once you know how to frame it properly, the game becomes vastly more enjoyable and you're able to appreciate the clever bits more. So, what are the clever bits? Well, for one thing, the combat system in Tsukuyumi Full Moon Down, because it's basically a troops on a map game, is fundamentally brilliant. You have these attack cards. When you declare a combat action, which you sometimes will and sometimes won't, you play the attack card and the attack card happens. And then everyone else that is involved in the combat chooses from a menu of responses on your attack card. So it's entirely deterministic and it always involves trade-offs. And you're almost never going to be in a position to resolve a combat and have no consequences come back to bite you but you have some control over what gains you make at what cost. And so there's always these trade-offs in terms of killing enemy soldiers, grabbing territory. It's almost impossible to do both of those things at the same time. That's another interesting feature of of the combat system versus your faction's own unique abilities. This is heavily, heavily asymmetric, but in a very satisfying way. So we played two players this time with the whales. One of the factions is whales. I don't have a whole bunch of enthusiasm for whales in real life, but when it comes to games, I, I the, the space whales in Sidereal Confluence are my favorite faction. Star Trek Four is my favorite Star Trek movie. I really like the whales in Tsukimi, so maybe I do actually like whales. And, and whale riders. You love whale riders. I do love whale riders. You're right. I guess I just like all fictional whales, other than Free Willy. Free Willy didn't do anything for me. I'm going to have to eval- you know, reflect and evaluate this part of myself. And the two-player rules are also really, really good. You might be wondering, well, if it's a troop, troops on a map game, how can it be satisfying two-player? Well, in two reasons. One, the victory conditions are entirely changed. Now everybody just has these faction-specific victory conditions that they have to meet. And that doubles down on the asymmetry, and it means everything is kind of like mission-based. And you have a very good sense of what your opponent is trying to do, and so there's lots of interaction that way. And also, another clever bit that also exists in the multiplayer room, Uh, mode is these Oni, which is a neutral faction, which serves to get in the way of everybody. And this helps to address one of the classic problems in multiplayer conflict games, which is how do I mess with my opponents all the time, even if I'm on the other side of the map. And especially as I've, as I've mentioned, sometimes getting across the map is not as easy as you might like it to be. While these neutral faction are right in the middle of the board and they spawn right in the middle of the board. And so they're a great way to engage in proxy battles. There's a whole bunch of other stuff to talk about in Tsukuyumi uh, Full Moon Down. I will stress the one difference between 1st and 2nd edition, though, and that is miniatures. I'll talk more about this later, because it's in the topic. This is one of the reasons why the topic is on my mind. 1st edition had these standees with all the combat stats printed on the standees. 2nd edition has miniatures, and you have these reference cards explaining what the combat stats of all the fa- uh, miniatures are. Is this as usable? No. Is it as problematic as I thought it might be? Rarely. Most of the time, it was okay. Would I still prefer the standees? I think on balance, yes. Also because the art is really, really good. The art, the, the miniatures do a reasonably good job of evoking the art, but Felix Mertzikat's full-color art on the standees was pretty delightful. So if I had the choice between the second edition from Gray Fox Games and the first edition from King Raccoon Games, I'd probably go for the first edition. It's a lot harder to get in North America, though. It's primarily available in Europe and or through King Raccoon Games' Patreon. They're a publisher that exists primarily on Patreon. It's it's an interesting business model. At any rate, I am now looking forward to a subsequent play of Tsukuyumi Full Moon Down, going back to the multiplayer game, being able to properly frame it, 
knowing that you're in, in for a three-hour game, which isn't always a problem, but, you know, again, when you're expecting 90 to 120 minutes and you get 180, that can be a bit of a downer. And being able to properly frame things that you have to be aggressive, go get territory, mix things up right from the start, which, as we've commented before, isn't always our game group's strengths. I want to explore the other factions. There's a lot of lore going on. There's a lot of really interesting asymmetry. I thoroughly enjoyed my experience with Tsukimi Full Moon Down, and I'm looking forward to more. Nice. We did a stream of Yokohama. I won't go on too much about it because I talk about Yokohama a lot. This is by Tasty Minstrel Games and designed by Hasashi Yahashi. And it is just one of these sort of Istanbul, very interesting worker placement where you're seating the board with workers, you're moving your boss around, has to follow the path of your workers, and then you're doing a strength action equal to your boss and your buildings and your workers on a space, and then you take those workers off, you're you're blocking other other players, you're making them pay money to move through your spaces, you're seeing where they're placing workers so you can take that action and and force them to do a suboptimal action. Uh, introducing new players to it. I enjoy watching them do different strategies or play differently that I've not seen before, that I have not done before, and me trying different strategies when this happens. So all in all, there's technologies, there's satisfying orders, there's uh, worrying about uh, clearing off your player board because there's so many places where you will dedicate your workers permanently, like either to the church or the customs house or to other spaces, and you're slowly you know, losing supply. So you've got to go to spaces to get them off your board, get buildings off your board. Lots going on with Yokohama it is also on board game arena. So if you want to give it a try, head over there, Yokohama. Talking about satisfying orders. Do you want to hear about the most satisfying order I ever got? I sure do. One time a dentist told me to eat chocolate. It was great. That's a good order. It was a satisfying order. Got to try dinosaur table battles. I talked a couple of weeks ago about table battles by Annabelle Holland at Hollenspiel. And she commented in her release of Dinosaur Table Battles that her wife, Mary, insists that she make dinosaur versions of all their board games. But And this is literally on the back of the box of Dinosaur Table Battles. Amabel Howland's response is, But I'm not sure that there's any archaeological evidence to suggest that dinosaurs traded currency or were present at the charge of the Light Brigade. There's no evidence that they didn't. I think there is, actually. <laughs> I mean, yes, you can't prove a negative, but uh, I mean, definitely the charge of the Light Brigade. I think, you know, we have some descriptions and they were light on the 30 foot tall lizards. It's true. Walker, the famed epistemologist, seems unconvinced. We'll have to circle back to that one. Anyway, I, I mentioned this in part because Amabel Holland writes the best copy in the business. Her, the, the text on a lot of her board games, whether they're serious games or not serious games, are utterly hilarious. She's got a very, very good tongue-in-cheek sense of how to write r board game rules. And Dinosaur Table Battles is actually a shockingly interesting evolution of the Table Battles systems. I commented when talking about Table Battles, which Amabel Holland insists now that we have to call Human Table Battles, so as to differentiate it from Dinosaur Table Battles. In Human Table Battles, Lizard dies by the strength of the scenario, and I thought that some of the scenarios were really good, some of them, like the Plains of Abraham, were less so. But in Dinosaur Table Battles, you're drafting dinos, and I love being able to craft a little team of dinosaurs. You know, the, the Pterodon Ankylosaurus Alliance was, was my chosen force, and the fact that the Ankylosaurus is there is, of course, a prerequisite for playing. No Ankylosaurus, no play, one out of ten, literally unplayable. And it turns out that the Ankylosaurus was the MVP of our play, so that's great. Obviously, I'm biased, not necessarily as biased as Mary Holland, but pretty darn biased. 
And I also really appreciated how the damage system works. Damage now gives you some options. If you're hit sufficiently hard, you can either lose from your generalized life pool, or you can flip over one of your dinosaur cards, thereby making your dinosaur force less flexible, losing some of the special abilities, losing some of their activation abilities, what have you. And those additions to the system I thought were really, really good. And I don't know if a suboptimal drafting procedure could result in a suboptimal game, the same way that I find that suboptimal scenarios in human table battles would lead to a suboptimal game. But my first experience was very pleasant. I thoroughly enjoyed it. It's still very, very much about forcing tempo, about obliging your opponent to respond with the reactions that will cost them their turn, but do not harm you in any serious way or, or don't harm you very much. But I got to look at what my opponent was was setting up in terms of their dice and making trade-offs about how I was going to have either those dice pinned or just eat the, the attack that they were going to launch against me. There was a very good sense of dynamism and of back and forth and of timing. I thought the Dinosaur Table Battles was thoroughly delightful. I'm looking forward to trying it again, although I'll probably end up in the same situation I end up in Blood Rage. Doesn't matter what's happening in Blood Rage, if I get Fenrir in my hand, I'm going to keep it. Similarly, if I have the option of taking Ankylosaurus, I'm probably going to keep it. So that was D Dinosaur Table Battles. Lastly for me, Alexander Pfister put out a game called Great Western Trail. It's published by Edgar Spiel, and it's sort of a build-your-own-rondelle-type game where you're taking cows to the alien overlords, because we all know aliens love to experiment on cows and depending on how close you get them to particular ufo bases you're going to score points now we played with the expansion rails to the north and much like any other euro expansion it usually takes what is a tight resource game that's punishing and opens it up and makes everything more free we've seen this with marco polo we've seen this with countless other euro games and Rails to the North is no different. It uh, makes you exchange your cows much easier, so you have a better hand when you get to the end. It uh, lets you use the spaces much easier, lets you have more flexibility on where you're going to deliver the cows. All of that said, every time I play Great Western Trail is the same scenario, Mark. I have a plan, and I don't follow that plan, and then halfway through the game I remember the plan but then still <laughs> decide not to act on the plan and then fail <laughs> great the, western trail the alien overlords are very disappointed in you walker yeah I, I don't bring them a good assortment of cows yes because the alien overlords insist on a variety of cows otherwise they get bored of probing the same kind of cow over and over again that's the explanation yeah, well, right they, they, uh, the same with, you know, scientifically, Mark, you need an array of different subjects. You can't just probe the same type of cow over and over again. Theme. You're not going to learn anything that way. Theme. Finally, for me, I got to play Quirky Circuits by Nikki Valens and Plat Hat Games. I've been meaning to try Quirky Circuits ever since it came out because I really enjoy Nikki Valens' design work. I think they, they've done some really solid stuff. I found Mansions of Madness 2nd Edition shockingly interesting. I think that they do narrative better than nearly anybody else in the board game business. Legacy of Dragonhold is fantastic, and I can't wait to finally finish that campaign once I'm re reconnected with my board game collection. When I run in slow motion across the, the beautiful field while the classical music plays, Legacy of Dragonhold will absolutely be one of the games on the other end that we run to embrace each other. Anyway, Quirky Circuits is utterly unlike those games. It has a little bit of narrative. There's a little bit of a story. Uh, but imagine this, Walker. It's basically the mind coupled with space alert because you're cooperatively playing programming cards out for this. Well, in the early scenarios, it's basically a cat Roomba 
so as to be able to move the cat Roomba around us to suck up all the dust bunnies and or any of the things that the cat Roomba has accidentally shattered on the way to the dust bunnies. But you play cards face down and you're not allowed to talk. So you end up in these situations where you're staring at the back of the card. The back of the card will give you some information about what the card does. For example, it might tell you that it is a turning card, but it won't tell you whether it's turning right, turning left, or doing a 180 degree about face. So you're staring at the card, making meaningful eye contact with your uh, the other players, and then agonizingly wondering whether you should play a card because if they turned right, things are golden, but if they didn't turn right, you are ruining everything. Every player has to play a card every round, and there are some very, very, very limited communication rules. Uh, I think not quite allowing what I did by slamming my forehead against the table over and over and again. I think that might be technically cheating in quirky circuits, but I don't know. But when magic happens, it is utterly magical. The only way we won, we won the, the scenario we played, it was one of the early scenarios, and it's not that difficult a game, was because we literally had to make a gamble whereby everyone at the table had to assume that everyone else had been playing perfectly and had the exact right cards and was doing the exact right thing. And when it worked, it was kind of glorious. Faith, Mark. It's faith. Oh, it was definitely faith. Uh, George Michael was right. You've got to have faith. So I compare it to Space Alert because it definitely has that aspect of a minor detail going off, not having perfect coordination with your partner, and everything going to pot. I prefer Space Alert, though, because one of the things that I, I realized the Quirky Circuits made me really emphasize was that I really like that coordination element with your teammates, about having a common problem, being able to discuss who can do what, when, and where, delegation of improvisation, th things of that nature. Quirky Circuits, by virtue of its communication restriction, it's far more of just hoping that things go well. Now, as a consequence, the game is a fraction of the time. It has a spiral-bound scenario book where the maps are printed on the actual book, one of our favorite innovations for speeding up setup time. And it's vastly more accessible than Space Alert. In a way, they're very, very different games. But I did end up missing that communicative aspect. Gambling on what your friends were doing was kind of enjoyable, but ultimately it left me feeling a little bit hollow because that's not the kind of cooperation I want. I would have much rather played something like, for example, Switch and Signal insofar as it has at least overt cooperation with your partner, even though it's not, it's just a question of, of multiplayer committee problem solving. Now, that's only to talk about the coordination elements, right? Quirky Circuits doesn't have the kind of coordination that I like with other people in a co-op game. Everything else about the game is delightful. I, I really like the different scenarios. I really like the visual appeal. I like the overall tone. I like the way that the deck of movement cards is different for each scenario, and so you can start making educated guesses about what might or might not have been played. I like how card cycling works, because you only get to draw new cards if you play out the cards, but you only play out the cards by actually moving the thing, so there's no way to get rid of garbage except for waiting for your moment. There's a lot of clever stuff going on, and honestly, the fact that it is so quick and so approachable, and I've uh, heard a number of people, including the person who taught me the game, talk about playing it with their children, which I can completely believe, and I thoroughly appreciate the fact that you still get that hectic feeling of flying by the seat of your pants that you get in other games like Space Alert, like even games like Robo Rally, although I'm not a huge fan of Robo Rally. So Quirky Circuits was very, very enjoyable. Not necessarily my preferred flavor of co-op, but I absolutely loved what it did with the rest of the core elements. And I'm very, very glad to have given it a try and would happily play again. That's Quirky Circuits by Nikki Valens, published by Plat Hat Games in 2019. Those are the games we played this week. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. 
With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Now, on to the news and why it doesn't matter. So there's going to be a 15th anniversary edition of Agricola Walker, appropriately called Agricola 15. It works out for me. It does work out for you. I I have a number of concerns, though. One of them is, and this is incredibly petty, 15 doesn't seem like a momentous anniversary. And on top of that, the revised edition was only published about five years ago. So the timing strikes me as a little bit weird. And... It also doesn't seem to have much in the box. There have been a host of expansions for Agricola, even the revised edition. Four different decks. Farmers of the Moor. And it's only ha- it's only got two decks. It's, I just it's don't strange. think they want to overwhelm people, right? Because you get into that problem where someone buys a box and it has so much stuff in it that they just close the lid and put it back on the shelf. Right, but is this supposed right, to be this the will new lead- entry, entry point for Agricola it, revised edition? We don't know. I, I think so. Okay. I think this is for people who are new to it. You get a couple of boxes and then it gives you the room, like if you get into it more, to add all the other stuff that you want later. And the box is big enough to fit it all in. And I just think it's like the newest, you know, starting box for Agricola. We don't have a whole lot of information yet. I'm primarily concerned, like everybody else who already has a copy, is there going to be stuff in there that is going to make me trigger a bit of my completionist urges? Now, in past years... I've been making some progress on fighting those completionist urges. I'm now happily sitting on an incomplete and forever incomplete copy of Cthulhu Wars, a forever incomplete copy of Too Many Bones. So we'll see. I don't even actually have the D deck yet for the Agricola Revised Edition. But who knows? Yes, from what I've heard, you get the A and B deck, and it is the Revised Edition. Other than that, that's it. Well, there's going to be lots of wooden components. It's unclear whether these wooden components are going to be substantially different from some of the other wooden components. There's mention of some exclusive stuff. Again, I just don't know whether the exclusive stuff is going to make me feel like I have a hole in my heart that only commercialism can fill. Well, I'll be picking it up so you'll be able to see exactly what's in it. All right. And the only thing for me is, Mark, squats in 40K. Who's excited? Everyone's excited. (laughs) I heard that they made the announcement. And I I figured that even Games Workshop would not be so cruel as to do this as an April Fool's joke, because there is a substantial number of people 
Josephus among them, who desperately long for the glorious return of the squats. And my understanding is that Game Workshop even had to say, no, 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 even though we announced it proximate to April Fool's, this isn't an April Fool's joke, we're actually bringing back the squats. And for those who don't know, squats are dwarves in the far future. So dwarvish science fiction models. They had them back in the old days, egg-shaped guys and gals riding trikes and buggies. Well, it's Games Workshop, it, not, not so much with the gals. And and people have always, it's going to be one of these things where everyone says they want them back, but then they'll sit on the shelves <laughs> and nobody will want them. <laughs> but some people, Walker, for decades have kept the faith. Some people like you, Semper Fi for the Space Dwarves. So true. I, I still feel sorry for those Chaos Dwarf players from Fantasy Battle. Look, it's the Games Workshop business model. They'll make you fall in love with something, and then they'll obsolete it a couple days later. It's the way of things. It is the way it goes. Honestly, I think the people who are involved in heavily in the Games Workshop scene, they have to acknowledge that it is somewhat of an abusive relationship by now. Anyway, lastly for me, Trickshot, the wonderful hockey game from Wolf Designer and Artem Nichaporov, is going getting a second edition. It's going to be launching on GameFound. There's going to be new cards, new rules, new glorious stuff. They're going to have an upgrade pack for owners of the first edition, like myself. I have yet to play anything by Wolf Design and Artem Nichaporov that was not thoroughly excellent. I'm looking forward to the new Warpgate stuff that was on GameFound recently. I am absolutely going to be pledging for the new Trickshot stuff. And of course, we are hotly anticipating the arrival of Guards of Atlantis 2nd Edition, which is has already been fulfilled in some lucky regions of the world and will eventually be wending its way over to our fair continent. That is going to be Trickshot 2nd Edition on GameFound soonish. And that is the news, and why it does not matter. Now, on to the topic of the week, which is miniatures. When do they add to the experience, and when do they detract? So I I can't help but notice that the board gaming world seems to be balkanized into two opposing forces. There is the, well, you should always put minis in wherever possible, and they'll find a way to make it possible, even if you wouldn't think that it was possible. And then there are the people who look down on any game that has miniatures and dismiss it purely purely as a marketing gimmick, not realizing, of course, that their consumerist tendencies are also subject to marketing gimmicks, just of different kinds. We, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, are part of the rational middle that don't necessarily subscribe to either of those two extremes. Agreed. And I think you'll probably see in in the majority of... The abusers of this will be 99% uh, crowdfunding projects. (laughs) I think it's safe to say that if you identify any degenerate trend in board gaming, 99% of the abusers will be crowdfunded projects anyway. And the remaining 1% will often be Games Workshop. It's true. I I, I don't know why I'm ragging all over Games Workshop. Actually, yes, I do. Never mind. I know exactly why. I was going to say, what are you talking about? They deserve every little bit of it. (laughs) It's true. You're right. I'm sorry. (laughs) So do you want to – would you like to start with the abuses? No. Oh, okay. We'll uh, we'll go down to the abusers then. Yes. We played Damio. Do you remember Damio? I only only dimly remember Damio because it was a pretty forgettable experience. It was forgettable and it was a Euro-type game that had – Tons of miniatures that were completely pointless. Not only that, that they blocked most of the spaces so you couldn't see what they were for. Unnecessary giant miniatures that increased the cost. I I have to agree with you. The the tragedy is, and I don't want to leave this theme of abusers because I will absolutely start talking about abusers soon. Sometimes I think it actually works 
even in just Euro worker placement games. And the salient example that comes to my mind is Dogs of War. The miniatures in Dogs of War are entirely unnecessary, but oh my goodness, they're just so delightful. <laughs> and I wouldn't trade it for anything. And I think it's because they're so ridiculously over the top. Yeah, and mostly that. it's the hats. You get you get to show people Dogs of War and say this is a game about hats because all the all the worker busts that you have, they're these lovely busts. I, I think that's part of it. If they were actual miniatures of like a of, of the mercenary captain, just a standard twenty eight mil or or thirty mil mercenary captain, then it would just be pretty generic and forgettable, and I'd say get rid of it. But you don't see a whole lot of busts in miniatures game de- design. And they all have these absurd headpieces that just lends to the sort of Baroque theming of the game and the fact that everything is gilt, and it really helps double down on the visual appeal. It's true, but I, I have it under my list of things, it's unnecessary, like very unnecessary for I'll Dogs gra- of War. I'll grant you that it's unnecessary, but I think it adds to the experience. So there's unnecessary and adds to the experience and unnecessary, but I will forgive because I'm a hypocrite. Gotcha. All right, let's go over some like generic bad things. Like increases the box size. Like with oh yeah, with 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 certain games, which we'll talk about later. That now you have to have them in two boxes, three boxes sometimes. Not only that, the packing they come in these these games will have to show up now in six boxes, and you might be able to reduce them down to two. Tons of plastic that goes out in back into the landfill. That is just unnecessary. Not only that, increases to the cost. Of the game for you, for other people, especially when it's not necessary and the time takes you time to unpack it. It says, oh, you need the zombie with the with the rocket launcher that has the magazine on the top and the one and the and the one tentacle. And so you're like looking through all these different bags. Okay, well, we want to use the right figures. We have the right figures. Absolutely. Use the right figures. So then you're taking time looking through all these. And this happens in a lot of the adventure games as well. It's like, okay, we need the skeletons with the spears, but not the not the lunging spears and not the halberds, the, <laughs> the, the long spears. Yep. So you're like sorting through all these different bags, trying to find the correct miniatures, even though it doesn't really matter. But anyway, time. It does, it does matter, though. It does matter. I, I can't explain why or justify it, but it matters. As you say, the component exists, therefore we must use the proper one. Yeah, I mean, my, my biggest intellectual concern, and I don't know a whole lot about this in terms of the details, so we can't really go into the weeds of it, but the ecological impact of all these petroleum byproducts has to be considerable. I remember once, actually, I was talking with Huey, and I was kind of bragging. It's like, look, if if you think about it, uh, my carbon footprint isn't actually all that large. And I talked about all the things that I don't do and all the things that I, I, I actually try to do. Not that I'm, you know, I'm hardly any saint of the environmental movement. But, you know, I, I do try to be conscious about some things. And he, he listens to me in, in Huey's very patient way. And then he's like, yeah, but your board games. I'm like, oh, yeah, you're right. (laughs) So so much for that. Sometimes at least, yeah, and the packaging adds to shipping costs, which further exacerbates things, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah, it's a huge deal. And sometimes you can condense everything down. So I had an all-in pledge of Tsukiyomi Full Moon Dan 2nd Edition, which came in a massive, massive box full of other massive boxes. And with no difficulty at all, I was able to get everything into the core game box. Zero difficulty. Then there are things like Ankh, where normally, 
Rising Sun, Blood Rage, all of these were games that are able to get all inside the core box. Massive Darkness, first edition, more on that in a moment. Even uh, the other even the others that came in like what, Seven Sins, the core game, the Kickstarter exclusives, a couple, a couple of extra special boxes, teams, yeah, a whole bunch of boxes. Still all down into one box. Yeah. And honestly, it's one of those things where the difference between having one box and two boxes is huge in terms of how easy it is to bring it around, how easy it is to set it up for a game night, how easy it is to bring it to somebody else's house. It's it's such a big difference. And honestly, as much as I adore the miniatures in Ankh, the fact that you can't bring it down into one box is seriously a big downer. Well, within reason, right? Because you could pre-choose your guardians, right? So you could say, these are the guardians we're going to use tonight, leave everything else at home, and then you might still be able to get into one box. I don't think so. (laughs) There's a lot of different god factions, Walker. Well, I guess supposedly you could do the same with the gods. You know, we're playing four players. No. Pull four randomly. I know, I know, I know. Well, there's, that's really, when you look at it, I don't want to, I don't want to point fingers, but Simon is like such a bad contributor to this. We have Blood Rage, we have Rising Sun, we have Ankh, we have uh, Dogs of War, we have uh, the others, we have all the Zombicide stuff. Yes. Huge plastic, huge packaging. Even one of our favorite Kulmanianot games, namely Xenoshift, they felt the need to shoehorn in a miniature anyway. They're like, oh, it's it's our company name. I guess we need to do this. Remember how there yeah, was a... Here's your, here's your, yeah, here's your first player marker. It's got to be miniature. And it was also, the, I think, the crappiest miniature they ever made, so it was doubly pointless. Yeah, no, we, we, we probably, of the board game media that I consume, I think we're the, we are the most pro Kulmini or not in terms of their designs. But yeah, in terms of their contribution to this quote-unquote problem of miniatures where there don't need to be miniatures, they are absolutely one of the worst offenders, if not the worst. So other games that don't need miniatures, because a lot of people were talking about with Agricola 15, they're saying, well, it's not deluxified. We want, you know, the miniatures for the workers. You don't like, get to use that seen... word. You don't get to use that word. That word was trademarked by a company that is now defunct. You do not get to use that word. Did I say deluxified? I just meant del- the deluxe version. Sorry. You said it again. Of Agricola. So they, they're complaining that there's no miniatures in Agricola 15 because, you know, you can get those miniature packs for uh, yeah. for Agricola. And then Crusaders. We've been talking about Crusaders lately. Its Kickstarter came with like two full sets of of that was that bizarre, yeah. And the same thing is going to happen with uh, Frostpunk. It's going to come with so many extra sets. It has a complete plastic set and a complete wooden set. Ugh. It's going to be ridiculous. So I talked about Tsukuyumi Full Moon Down. This is an instance where the miniatures actually reduce your ability to parse the information flow. Because let's be frank. Counters and standees can bear information in a way that miniatures cannot. Now, when we talk later on about the good side of miniatures, I will absolutely be willing to point out how sometimes miniatures are better at conveying some things than than counters and standees. But Tsukuyumi is not an example of this. I've got Big City on here. Giant plastic that is completely unnecessary. It looks fantastic. When it's on the table and the Big City is built, looks great. Other than that, wow. Yeah, and if you didn't have the buildings, then you'd have to realize that you were doing something kind of pointless, so. Maybe. Agreed. 
Battlestar Galactica. And I looked at the Infavenable box today. It also has giant figures that are completely unnecessary. Yep. Let's not forget that Fantasy Flight used to be the Seamon of its day. It's true. Destinies is sort of like an adventure game where you're putting out these like really tiny figures and that leads into the time because you're trying to find these little tiny figures. It's like, no, it's not that monk. It's the monk with the cane. (laughs) You put him out. Even though it shows it on the screen because it's an app driven game, you have to have the app. So the app shows the miniatures on the board. So you have to get the miniature from the box, put it on the board so it matches the app. And then, you know, you do a couple things and it says, take that, that figure off now and put it back in the box, you know, because that monk went away. Completely pointless miniatures in Destiny's tapestry. I think the same thing. Oh my goodness. We even found problems with the buildings not fitting properly on the board and it's on the side and it doesn't even really resemble a a city when you're building them. They're just sort of tetrameter pieces, completely pointless. It's true. And I think this, this actually highlights something. When a miniature is involved, even though we're kind of jaded that, that miniatures have been inundated in hobbyist board games for a very long time. I remember 20 years ago when a game would have miniatures, people were like, ooh, ooh, fascinating. Oh, wow, miniatures. It has miniatures. It has five miniatures in the box. And now we're completely jaded. But nonetheless, if there's going to be a miniature involved representing something, we're going to assume that it connotes or denotes something unique and or powerful and or consequential. And one of the many things about tapestry that is so underwhelming is you have these lovely giant building miniatures and they mean nothing. They mean nothing. They are literally just, as you say, tetromino pieces that don't fit very well. And then scythe, giant mechs that aren't really giant mechs. Similarly, people complain about that too. Yeah, a lot of people bounce off of scythe hardcore because they see these giant mechs and like, I want to go around and stomp and, and, and hit people with my mechs. And it's like, no, actually... Uh, they're mostly just there to ferry your workers around. It's it's more like some sort of uh, bipedal taxi service, and then people get very disappointed. It's it's a question of frustrated expectations. You see a, you see a mini, it it generates certain expectations based on the nature of the game. And do you want a giant box of plastic, Mark? We have mechs versus minions. Now, I understand that when a big company is making their very first board game, <laughs> they want to make it bling bling bling. Well, this definitely was that. So many trays of minions, so many giant player figures, so much plastic. And that's to say nothing of what is hidden in the secret box. <laughs> it is so true. To, to my mind, the apotheosis of unnecessary miniatures is, kind of, is, is actually Cthulhu Wars. Because for years, Sandy Peterson was saying, no, 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 Cthulhu Wars can only exist with these huge... Not particularly detailed, but huge, colorful miniatures. This is the game. You can't do it any other way. I don't care that the miniatures won't fit back in the box. I don't care that I'm despoiling the world. I don't care that it costs five times as much as other board games. And I don't care that the board isn't big enough to hold all the miniatures. But people kept asking, and then they released Cthulhu Wars Duel, and it's a big success. And it demonstrates that you can actually do Cthulhu Wars without miniatures. So there you go. And then there's the new Robinson Crusoe that's coming out. It was on GameFound. And you say, what? What are you talking about? Robinson Crusoe doesn't have any any miniatures. Well, now it does. <laughs> all of your characters have miniatures. All the your NPCs have miniatures. They, they even have miniatures for the terrain, your little base camp. All sorts of plastic now added to Robinson Crusoe. Well, as you said before, it wasn't on crowdfunding, and now it is. So now it has exactly. 
you could do it like root. I have root in here as a good one, right? Because I just use wooden meeples. It is a troops on a map game that does not go towards miniatures. Yeah, so here's the thing. This is an interesting question. I, I, I honestly think that the sculpted meeple, or indeed the meeple itself, is basically the Euro World's answer to miniatures. I remember when the meeple was, was you know, a new thing. It's like, ooh, ooh, it's not a disc. It's not a cube. It's a little shaped thing. How neat. I remember in 2006 when uh, Agricola was first released and it had animeeples. It's like, ooh, little wooden animals. Little wooden animals. The collective world's mind was blown. Again, think of how jaded we are now. <laughs> Where shaped wooden resources and shaped wooden animals and shaped wooden people, sometimes silk screened or with stickers or uh, well, acrylic what- standees or what have you. This is all the norm now. Yeah, and they, they're getting out of control, too, as we saw with Yido, the deluxe Yido edition, where the meeples were so big, you couldn't see anything on the board where they were standing because they're gigantic wooden monstrosities. Yes, absolutely. Which I think is a good segue to what miniatures are good at, if you're willing to go in that direction. I have a mid a mid thing. You've already talked about a couple that you have forgave. Sure. I have a couple in the middle as well. Okay, go for it. Like, like Battle Lore 2nd Edition. I'm willing to forgive it. <laughs> on, on the basis of pure enthusiasm alone? Exactly. Now, Age of Empires <laughs> 3, right? Age of Empires 3, tons of plastic. All of the all of the pieces are different, and I think it would very much take away from the game if they were just colored cubes. I disagree, and here's why. I love Age of Empires 3 slash Empires Age of Discovery, one of my favorite worker placement games, and one of the great things about it is that you get these specialists that do very specialized things. Some of them are hard to differentiate from each other. I don't have this difficulty because i played it a whole bunch of times, but when you introduce people to the game for the first time, they're not going to have an easy time differentiate the captain and the soldier and the merchant and the settler. Happens every game, so much so that I remember exactly the confusion that people have, and I can visualize in my mind why they're having that difficulty. Is that person holding a musket at their hip, or are they holding a spyglass to their face? I don't know. It's just a little miniature with a thing pointing out of it. And so I think that counters would have done uh, a better job conveying that information. All right. Reasons why miniatures are good, or when are they used correctly? How about... I like how Gloomhaven and Mage Knight do it, where they're adventure-type games, where your character alone is the miniature, you identify with it, it's your piece, and everything else is either counters or standees, and that's that. I agree with you entirely. I think Gloomhaven is one of those examples. People often talk about how, oh, I want to replace all the standees with miniatures. I do not know why you'd want to do it that way, because the visual differentiation is super handy and super useful, and again, helps to put emphasis on, well, you're not really heroes in Gloomhaven, you're kind of grubby mercenaries, but the, the protagonists, and of course, the fact that the standees need to to deliver information. You need to di- issue different numbers to the different monsters, and it's relevant for tracking their damage and all that other stuff. And the heroes don't. So the things that don't need to convey information can be miniatures to give them pride of place. And then the horde of things that do need to convey information get to be standees. I agree entirely. And then there's miniatures that are practical, like we're talking about like uh, Cleopatra or Lords of Hellas, where you're actually building figures on the board to represent <laughs> statues that you're building in real life. I never in a million years 
would think that Lords of Hellas and Practical belong in the same sentence, Walker. Do you want to seriously take a step back and evaluate your life? When Not you just, for a second. You called Lords of Hellas Practical? You called it the, is, because you're... The because God no, monuments for, for the in Lords of Hellas? That are in it. Oh my because goodness. Because you're building statues and you're actually building the figure as you're building <laughs> the statue. It's, it's a practical implementation of miniatures. I don't want to trivialize mental illness, for example, the way Cthulhu Death May Die does, but you must be a madman. No, that, that could easily be done by counters. The, the way, look, I think that miniatures are useful in two contexts. One, where the physicality of the miniature is relevant. I've got a bit of a throwaway example for this, and that's something like HeroScape. HeroScape, the line of sight system is very simple. Can you actually see a portion of the miniature? There you go. I say it's a bit of a throwaway because, honestly, line of sight in HeroScape is pretty trivial. There are almost no corner cases. Either you're hidden behind a mountain or you're you're visible because there ain't no tree that can hide a full miniature. But anyway, setting all that aside. Or, in this applies to Root... This applies to Battlelord to a certain extent. This applies to things like Massive Darkness. This applies to a whole bunch of games with miniatures. Miniatures are easier to pick up as a stack and move from place to place. And they are easier to eyeball in terms of sheer quantity, right? If I look at a clearing and route, I know how many warriors are there. And if I need to move all of those warriors from clearing to clearing, it is very easy for me to do. If they were standees or or if they were counters, it would be more difficult to numerate them at a glance and it would be more difficult to move them from place to place. That feeds into two of my points where if you have a game that's turn-by-turn scoring or an area majority game where you have like figures that you need to know what their strengths are because they have different strengths, you can quickly look at the board. Or if it's like a type of game that you're scoring on either area majority or what you have on the board every round, you can quickly see they've got four factories and a farm. You know how many points they're getting. You don't have to like look down at the on the tokens and see, you know, what they have on the board. Well, sometimes, because allow me to, to, in classic hypocritical faction, back up and qualify what I'm saying, because sometimes you can get the same effect through cubes. If you don't need to move them as a block very often, cubes will do you just as well. Uh, sometimes discs, but not as often, because if you stack discs, it's not as easy to enumerate them at a glance. So I'm thinking about a game like El Grande. El Grande is kind of sort of almost a troops on a map game-ish. It was originally designed as such about the Trojan Wars, and you need to be able to easily enumerate at a glance how many cubes someone has. The difference between something like El Grande and something like, say, Root, is that in El Grande, you are not as frequently moving large groups of cubes from place to place. It's a very dynamic game, and you are absolutely repositioning your cubes, but it's not like I am moving these three cubes to an adjacent area all the darn time, like you're doing with Root. And so that is one of the reasons why the meeples actually are slightly more functional than other equivalents. But sometimes you can get away with, with just cubes. And then there's all of the, you know, campaign, adventure type games, which... It's telling a story. You're going on an adventure and it's just sort of, it is part of the game, sort of the part of the immersion is having, you know, all of the monsters on the board with your characters sort of like also goes into Project Elite where it's, it is the game. The figures are the game, like the aliens attacking the base. It would just would not give you the same feel if you had like cubes moving towards the base, you know, you wouldn't get that same sense of, you know, worrying about your guys dying or whatever. Well, it's funny you mentioned Project Elite because I think Project Elite is probably one of the games where, functionally speaking, the miniatures are the most important. I'm hard-pressed to think of any game where the miniatures serve a more functional purpose than Project Elite because it's real-time and you're constantly moving them around. 
It's one of the reasons, actually, why I had a slight preference for the original uh, printing of Project Elite, because the miniatures were just these easily differentiable blobs. They were very, very blunt, uh, very kind of amorphous blobs, whereas the Simon version, they were less visually differentiable, and they had little sharp edges, because you're constantly just rapidly moving miniatures one space or shuffling together a conga line together. And it would be super hard to do that with the same degree of speed and precision if they weren't miniatures. Agreed. Just be glad they weren't goblin spearmen. My God, I think I still have <laughs> scars on my hand. <laughs> I mean, I would I would say a similar thing about something like Death, Cthulhu Death May Die. I think that the game would be harder to manage because it's very fast pace. It's very much about low figure count. Um... You want to you want to keep things going with a forward momentum, and I th- honestly think that Cthulhu Death May Die would suffer in terms of its functionality if it had counters or cubes or or something else other than some kind of miniature. Same thing with games that are just getting by on theme alone. Like if it's a heavily themed game because of the miniatures that are involved. If you just downgrade it to counters and or standees, then it'll like take away and it'll lose what it has. I'm not so sure, uh, because good standees can be really good. And let's not forget the fact that there's this new trend of those beautiful acrylic standees like we see in Uprising Curse of the Last Emperor. I, I think that in some cases, depending on the visual art style, we are now in a position, thanks to new approaches to art design, where we can see standees that are more visually impressive than miniatures. It's true. Yeah, those acrylic standees are are getting very nice. There was that the, that uh, Kickstarter that had the whole sort of array of different yep. acrylics you could get. It is on the rise, and I am excited to see what, you know, it's going to get. And then there's also the augmented reality stuff that is also sort of interesting as well that's coming along. Yeah, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic about where that might be in about five years. I think we're a ways off, but who knows? There are a couple of special categories that I want to give a shout out to. One of them is uh, games that are basically tabletop miniatures games that don't have miniatures. So there's something up on crowdfunding now, Onus Trianus, which is basically a tabletop miniatures game, but it uses cards and a measuring stick instead of you know miniatures information. The same approach that Battlegrounds Fantasy Warfare did. Similarly, the old Disc Wars game, or the slightly newer Warhammer Disc Wars, was basically a tabletop miniatures game, but it actually used the physicality of discs in order to get things to proceed. The game called Frontier... Doomrock does the same sort of thing. Doomrock, absolutely, is has a, a number of the aspects of a tabletop miniatures game. That is a, exactly right. But the stacks of, of health point chips are more functional than a miniature would be. And so this is another another time where you're leveraging the ability of non-miniatures to convey information to good effect. And I do want to give a shout out to one of my favorite board game critics who doesn't really produce board game criticism anymore, Scott Nicholson, who pioneered the use of the term dolls for miniatures. And I absolutely approve of that. I think that it is a great way to troll people who take their toys too seriously. We we love our toys a great deal, but we try not to take them too seriously. And so Scott Nicholson was a big fan of HeroScape, but he reliably called the miniatures dolls. And I am fully in support of anyone who wishes to do that. Yeah, and I really loved how, I really loved how City of Kings did their sort of system where you put 
the cards on this board that had a symbol at the top, and then you put this giant banner on the on the game board to show that that banner represented what's over here. And I thought and it looked fantastic on the board, and it sort of made sense. You know, this is the army carrying their standard around, and you could just quickly look over and you knew exactly what it was. What a great system. Well, that and uh, this is going back to some of the down downfalls of miniatures, of course, but this is a broader aesthetic point. City of Kings did the same thing that Shadows of Malice does, which is that all of your adversaries, or at least most of your adversaries, are abstracted. They were defined by a couple of special traits they had. So you're not necessarily fighting, you know, this miniature of a poisonous lizard. You're fighting an enemy that has a variety of aspects that you can then, that you're then encouraged to construct in your mind what that adversary might well be. And if you, sometimes when you give that buy-in, you get a certain degree of imaginative flexibility that a miniature doesn't have for you. Now, I'm, look, I'm not the kind of creative person who's like, I don't want to be shackled by, like, the specificity man. I want it all to be imaginative and freeform. But sometimes, if the game system is flexible enough, and both City of Kings and Shadows of Malice had very, very flexible adversary creation systems, you can't make miniatures for that, because that would be too limiting. Agreed. Well, that's all the time we've got for this week of So Very Wrong About Games. Thank you very, very much for joining us. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us at sowronggames.com slash contact on our website, sowronggames.com. You can also find our glossary, our dramatis personae, more biographical information about the hosts, as well as merch. Walker, you have your merch. I'm getting my merch. Merch. We love merch. We read everything you send us, and we will get back to you if we can. Thank you again very, very much for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.